make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. To what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. And he has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, hey, welcome to Making the Hedge. My name is Josh Gibbs. I'll be your host this evening. Uh, thank you to those who are tuning in live. Uh, let me switch back over here to our interview scene so we can cut away from the video. Uh, tonight's kind of going to be a little bit different night. Typically, we uh, in the past have had uh, some different guests on to talk about a specific subject. And just to kind of dialogue, uh, I've had some debates in the past uh, with free will. Uh, as well as an upcoming debate, we've uh, actually a debate we did a couple of weeks ago on dispensationalism, and then an upcoming debate uh, that you may be interested in tuning in for. I think it's something worth your while. Um, we're going to be talking about man's ability to come to Christ prior to regeneration. Uh, so obviously, that's going to be something that you may or may not be interested in if you are a traditionalist or a Calvinist. Um, I think it'll be something that you'll see a strong perspective from both ends of the spectrum, uh, from both the Calvinist side as well as the traditional side. Uh, so um, I think that'll be worth your while. And But tonight is kind of a special night because we're not doing a debate. We're not doing uh, just a dialogue with a, a, a picking a topic. We're actually talking to an author, Kevin Mickick. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Mikach. Mikach. Okay. See, I've already messed up, man. I didn't see the... <laughs> You're not the only one. But anyways, hey, welcome to <clears throat> Making the Hedge. The whole purpose of, the purpose of this show is to provide another source of, of a traditional view online for uh, YouTube or Twitter or whatever podcast that you may be listening to. Eventually, I think that we may get on to Apple um, Apple Podcasts, and that way it's, you can just stream the audio if you want to, if you're like me. Um, I, I'm out working on equipment all day and I'll just listen and pop my headphones in and listen to a podcast. There's not a lot of traditional perspectives out there, as many of you may know. Um, and that's maybe why you um, watch this show. I don't know. But anyways, so tonight, Kevin Mikich, Mikich, is that? Okay. So Kevin Mikich yep. has written a book. It is called Calvinism, a foundation laid on sand. Is that right? Built on a foundation of sand, yes. I'm sorry. I just, yeah. Uh, Cal Calvinism built on a foundation of sand. So that's what we're going to be talking about. I read this book uh, a couple of days ago. It's 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 an easy read. It's um, it's something that doesn't take a ton of time, but there's a lot of information in it. Um, I don't know. It prob I've got the Kindle version. A lot of my books are on Kindle. A lot of, uh, I don't know, probably half of my books are on, 
online now uh, on the Kindle version. Um, and there's some benefits to that for you. If you're like me, you like to be able to just scroll through and do the the the, the steady scrolling and having to flip through all the pages and everything. Um, there's an index that you can go to the different uh, sections within his book as well. But that's what we're going to be talking about tonight is his book and kind of the different sections and, and specifically why this was uh, something that is, is worth writing about. So I guess, Kevin, that would be my first question to you is what actually drove you um, to write this book about Calvinism? Well, when I first got started, I had uh, basically, I do a lot of evangelism online and about 90% of the people that I talked to were in under this Calvinistic umbrella. And I just found it to be so contrary to what the Bible actually says that it actually was what got me started studying the Bible. And uh, so I wanted to see if they were right or what if I what I was taught was right. And uh, so I, that's actually what got me started in actually studying scripture. And uh, I just found it to not be the case of what the Bible actually says. And so... Uh, I basically had already written a few articles on certain topics already, and so I figured I would just compile them to one book, just kind of for everyone to read. Cool. So how long did it actually take you to put all of this together, and uh, did you write it? So I, I, this is just kind of a side question. Did you write it in um, an e-published format um, that is something that you can just put on Kindle? How does that process work out to find a publisher and all of that? Well, actually, I was uh, kind of blessed, and I just—it was actually a friend of a friend. Um, okay. Some guy just referred me. A brother actually referred me to the guy that published his book, so nice. that was kind of a kind of fell into place there. Wait. Um, and he just kind of goes through Amazon, so. Nice. So this is you. Cobb Publishing. Uh, yep. It looks like um, how long ago was this actually published? I don't see an exact date on here. It just says 2018. Uh, I want to say it was like September 9th or something. It was the beginning of September, so it hasn't been that long. So this is really recent. I actually remember seeing on Twitter um, when you had posted that up there that you had just published your first book. So right. for me, I was like, thumbs up, man. Like that. <laughs> Share it. That's awesome. And uh, obviously the title, I think, is pretty intriguing, something that uh, a lot of people, when they see it, they'll either be, you know, offended and say, hey, you know what, great, we've got someone against Calvinism here. Um, right. Or you would see from a traditional perspective, built on a foundation of sand, well, obviously, you're going you're gonna to show what the foundation of Calvinism is built on. And uh, to me, that's intriguing to get into and see that. Um, so I think the title is, is pretty provocative. I think that's good. But... Um, let me switch this camera back over. This thing always does it. I'm just going to stay on this camera so you guys don't have to see that green screen pop up every time. But anyway, so um, I figure we've probably got about an hour uh, if you wanted to, to go through this thing. I've got some highlighted portions. Um, but there, is there anything that you could kind of give us a backstory on how you, how you had actually decided what, um, what sections you would describe when it comes to the foundation that Calvinism is actually built on. What I mean, kind of, what do you see Calvinism as actually being the foundation? Um, to me, it was basically. I've seen a lot of Calvinism and Arminianism uh, debates over the years, and I found that they, 
it kind of irks me a little bit because they're pretty much just talking past each other and uh, they're pretty much saying the same things, but they're not coming to any conclusions. And that kind of, you know, caught my interest a little bit. And so I wanted to see basically not what Calvinists believe, but why they believe it. What were they grounding their, you know, foundation on and I came to the conclusion that it's their pretty much their philosophy and not scripture so that's pretty much why I what I saw and why I wrote the book to try and look past just all the proof texts that mm-hmm. you know both sides just throw out there you, you had to you have to get really deeper into it so yeah. that's kind of my approach to it Absolutely, man. I think that um, the first thing that I noticed when I really started dialoguing with um, Calvinists online is is um, um, that they've got the same the same terminology, right? But the definitions exactly. are completely different. So we could be talking right. about the sovereignty of God. We could be talking about uh, even grace itself. But um, just okay. the simple things like free will, we could be we could be discussing. I got know, it. <laughs> Oh, you're good, man. You got your son in there with you. Yeah. So, that's awesome. Yeah, start him young. What? Say hi, buddy. <laughs> you're on nah, TV. he left already. <laughs> but, um, so when it comes to the terminology and in in just the, the simplest uh, Christian terms that we talk about, like we talk about uh, the sovereignty of God, you go through the free will of man. Hi. Hey, what's up, buddy? How's it going, hi. man? Hi, everyone. Hey, did you help Daddy write this book? No. Are you going to read it when you get older? He was sleeping. So <laughs> much late nights. Oh, man. Joshua. Or Josh. You go by Josh? Yeah, that's whatever. Yeah, okay. Josh. Hey, can you say bye? No, bye. Bye. Bye, buddy. Howdy. 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 Sorry about that. Oh, you're good, man. <laughs> So we're talking about just the different terms that we've got. It's it's the same terms, different vocabulary, different de- definitions. Um, right. And and I think that when it comes down to it, uh, you, you can kind of see um, how a Calvinist would define something differently than a traditionalist would. And so in that per- and from that side of the angle, I think that it's important to actually lay down the definition of what we're describing. And exactly. so the very first section that you get to. Um, you talk about how it all started, kind of what you just told us just now, how you, how, what led you to write this book, and then right. you've got the sovereignty of God. That's what you open up with. If you could just give us a real brief description on what, uh, how a Calvinist looks at sovereignty and how you look at sovereignty, what the difference would be, um, what would that, how would you describe that? The sovereignty of God is uh, how I would pretty much define it. How the English people, you know, English speaking people would um, basically just means, you know, ruler or having all authority. And yeah. so that's pretty much what I would agree with. You know, yeah. God, this is God's world. We are his creation. He is the supreme ruler of all. He is the one that all authority has, or he has all the authority. Um, but Calvinists, I, you know, seem to take it a bit further and they throw in this fatalistic uh, doctrine, I guess you would call it, and pretty much teach that he 
pretty much determines everything. And uh, I just, from reading the Bible, I, I just don't, I don't get it. I mean, I can see their proof decks and it, you know, kind of makes sense. But given, you know, when you actually read it out, it, they don't really say what they're, they're trying to say, yeah. I guess. No, I hear you. So, and so. I would say, obviously, if there's any Calvinists <clears throat> that are watching right now, um, you're going to have some things that you're going to disagree with us. And and I think that when anytime you've got someone who's a non-Calvinist trying to define what a Calvinist believes, you're always going to have that certain element where a Calvinist is going to cry out misrepresentation, misunderstanding, exactly. you, don't, you don't know Calvinism. And it, my response would just simply be, there's so many different flavors to Calvinism. There's so many different flavors to non-Calvinism. There's so many different flavors to even Arminianism. And, and respectively... I think that if we're going to define Calvinism, we can take what uh, the face of Calvinism represents, especially in, in America. I think that you've got guys like John Piper, uh, you've got uh, guys like the late R.C. Sproul, um, and then you've got, uh, obviously, James White. James White would be probably uh, one of the most well-known name names. And, right I, now, and yeah. I think that James White is a hard determinist who takes a, a compatibilist stance that really, at the end of the day, is a, a determinist, fatalistic position on what Calvinism. Right. So I would say not all Calvinists believe the same thing when it comes to fatalism, determinism, hard determinism, especially if you're going to endorse the five um, elements of, of TULIP. Not all Calvinists. Right. Some you've got five points, four points. Some you know, I, I disagree with all points of TULIP. I don't. I don't know specifically what your stance would be on on each of the different points, but regarding the sovereignty of God, just because God is sovereign and he's ruling, it doesn't mean that he is absolutely determining everything that does come to pass. It, what it, what, and, and just because he is ruling doesn't mean that he has to rule that way. And I think that's something that a, a Calvinist could and most often does conflate, that the sovereignty of God is built on the ability of God. He can only do what he's able to do. What what are your thoughts in that regard? No, I, uh, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Um, he's defined by his nature, and so being sovereign is you know one of his qualities. Um, like you said, I in the book I even say that there's there's no way to pinpoint Calvinism. Um, you're gonna have you know people saying I'm misrepresenting them, and uh, it's just it's hard to pinpoint because there's so many variations of it. Um, but yeah, the, that's kind of like the big, I don't know. It's kind of hard. It's not really the foundation, but it's kind of starts with the sovereignty of God. And if you believe he determines everything, then everything else is going to follow with that. Well, and I think that that's a good place to start just simply because, um, you know, if, if you're trying to, and obviously if you're a Calvinist and you're watching, you're, you take for just take with a grain of salt that we're trying, you're, I think that Kevin and myself are both trying to represent Calvinism as accurately as we can. And what I would consider personally what a, con, a consistent Calvinist is, is someone who has to, you can't pick and choose what the systematic teaches. For instance, you can't say, um, by him and through him all things that come to pass are uh, God's sovereign um, decree from eternity past, and then not claim the bad things. You know, it, so what I'm saying exactly. is, uh, uh, some Calvinists will even will even take the stance that all things that are brought to pass are, are brought to pass because of God's sovereign will and decree right. from eternity past 
to actually bring it to pass. So that would mean that he's Which the Bible does never say. It doesn't say that. It, it actually says in Psalm 115 that he has given the earth over to man's rule. So, and, and I think that when it comes to the sovereignty of God, we have to, we have, from a traditional perspective that you and I would probably both agree to, we don't limit the sovereignty of God because he is able to do whatever he wants to do. It doesn't mean that he always does what he can do. It just simply right. means that he's established... Um, he, he has sovereignly established a way that he will rule, and that exactly. would also include free will. So um, the first quote that I've got, the first highlight, I'm definitely not going to get through each one of these, but I've got one That's highlight cool. that you put up on the sovereignty of God, and it says that it's extremely important to understand. I'm quoting you here. You say, they say that God determines and causes all things to happen. This is what they mean by the word sovereign, uh, but it's simply not the case. Like you stated before, Calvinists seem to use their own dictionary to define biblical terms. So we've already talked about this a little bit. And you say that right. the Bible never affirms this definition. But when we when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we, we just established the fact that, that God doesn't have to rule in the way that he, in, up to his ability. And he will never rule contrary to his nature. And I think that that's something that you absolutely pointed out that's key. So Yeah, um, yeah he absolutely could rule deterministically but he's chosen not to from yeah. what i can see in scripture and i would totally agree with that i would say that from from my perspective in transitioning to the next portion of your book here i think that god um now that we've established what what we believe about the sovereignty of god now it, it transitions into the free will of men now as soon as you say free will a calvinist you've got what i would call calvinist trigger words right i mean yeah. you start talking about free will yeah, and, and automatically the Calvinist, their alarms just start going off. I mean, you'd think that right. it's a synergistic, man-centered theology that you're earning your salvation when you say free will. Um, but it, what, are you, what are your introductory kind of thoughts on the free will of man um, based off of the sovereignty of God? Well, the term free will or phrase, uh, I define it simply as being able to refrain or not refrain from any given temptation. So we have the ability, man, to succumb to a temptation um, and sin, as James says, um, what sin, you know, being being succumbed to that temptation, or you can choose not to. Um, and that's, I'm, they kind of get into being... Uh, I forget how they define it, but choosing our na as our nature would, and I, I, that's another thing I just I don't see in scripture how they define it. So I don't know. You probably know the definition. Well, um, I think that um, I, it, and it, again, it's really hard to define um, what every what Calvinist they, individually would believe in. If you're right. if you're a traditionalist, I think the best way to uh, deal with Calvinism. You can deal with it in general in a way that we're doing right now and represent what um, a lot of the the, the main uh, faces of Calvinism would actually say and do say, and you can quote them and represent them so that you're not misrepresenting them. And, and yeah. I think that's important to do, which you do in your book. Um, but I think the, the best way individually is not to just uh, automatically assume that each Calvinist believes the same thing and, and have a conversation with somebody and start blasting these 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 points that the majority of Calvinists do believe, but instead right. dialogue with them, 
ask them what they believe about free will. Let exactly. them define what their terms are, and then you've got something to work with. Um, what I found, especially online, you, you've got a lot of guys who are just looking for a fight or an argument a lot of the time. Exactly. And, um, you know, um, but anyway, so a Calvinist typically is going to define free will um, as the ability of man to do what is according to his nature. And he can do nothing to change his nature. Um, and right. in regard to a response to the gospel, it's 100% impossible without a, a new heart. So regeneration prior to faith. But um, it, So here's, here, here's a highlight that I've got. Um, it says, We can see here in a few passages and others like a man does have a will, can do things that are contrary to God's will, and uh, it's sin against him. This reminds me of a question that is asked by many Calvinists, which goes something like this. Does anything happen outside of the will of God? And then you say, well, yes, the Bible calls it sin. So automatically, right off the bat, you're getting down to the heart of the issue. If God is sovereign and man does not have free will, does God ordain sin? So what, do, what, what are you kind of getting at when you wrote that in your book? Um, that's basically what it comes down to is that that question that they ask and it's kind of begging the question um but they that's what they'll ask and of course things operate outside of god's will he wants us to do good obviously and do, not doing good would be contrary to his will or sinning and the yellow one's mine okay can i, can I talk? sandwich sandwich good job Sorry. Oh, you're good, man. Thank you. But um, yeah, they're, they it's a logical fallacy that they've acquired in their philosophy, and uh, I think once you can see past that, it's it's easy to answer the question. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously, um, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, or even the London Baptist Confession, um, it would say that God ordains all things that come to pass, except for sin. So, yep. you know, it's like, to me, yeah. that's so, it's so contradictory. It's like, nothing can come to pass unless God ordains it and decrees it, right. except for sin. We're not going to say that God does that, because obviously that would mean God's the author and cause of sin. But yet, right. you've got some guys who are at least honest about it. I think James White is honest about it. There's a couple of guys that um, I go back and forth with online uh, that are extremely honest about it and in your face about it. That, yeah, yeah, I've actually, so a superlapsarian Calvinist would actually believe uh, that you have in an affair with your wife or on your wife or, you know, just any sin that you can think of. Right. The worst sin in the world, the, the Holocaust, uh, you know, pedophilia, the worst thing that you can think of. They would actually say that God decreed it to happen and he brought it to pass out of his, to glorify himself through his own good pleasure. And right. to me that's more of a consistent Calvinist if you're going to say God brings all things that come to pass. And and then exactly. you've got, you know, guys like James White who would who have in fact said that if evil does not happen by God's hand, then it's purple, purposeless evil. What do you think what do you say to someone who says that that, you know, if if, if God doesn't have a purpose for it happening, then it's just purposeless. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um I don't really know what they mean by purposeless evil. It just just sounds, I don't know, it, it's weird sounding. But 
God being able to bring about good in spite of evil, uh, I think, is a greater God than what the Calvinists deem as their God. Amen, man. I think, uh, and see, the, a consistent Calvinist would say, and Calvinist, I know you're probably, if you're listening or you're going to listen in the future and you're listening back to this, you're, gonna, you're cringing because it may not represent your view. So again, I apologize. I'm try we're trying to represent what, um, what the mainstream Calvinists are saying uh, that are out there in the general public, and that's the face of it. Um, that the free will of man is something that they absolutely have to squash. I mean, at the end of the day, um, man, a Calvinist would not believe that man is aut autonomous, which means simply independent, um, right. something that's independent, independently acting um, of God's will, so that if they, and ultimately it comes down to a contradiction of a systematic. You're either going to contradict the systematic, or you're going to contradict uh, what the what the scripture actually says about free will. I mean, I see right. so many times that that God is telling you to choose. He's telling you to choose. He's telling you to choose, and He's laying out choices between, but before the Old Testament, saying if you do this, then I'll do this. And and he, he talks about in Ezekiel 18 that he doesn't take any desire in the death of the wicked. And in Matthew 27, he talks about um, him holding his hands out. He would how often he would have gathered um, the children of Israel as a, a mother hen gathers her chicks, but they would not come to him. They refused. And and right. there's always a choice laid out. Deuteronomy 30 says he lays out between a choice before him, a choice of life that you may live, and a choice of of death that it, you would die. And I think that that's a choice that was established back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. All the way right. back there, God laid out two different trees. You've got the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then you've got the uh, the tree of life. Tree of life. And, and those two options have been laid out before every single individual throughout ever since then. And, right. and I, I don't think that that has ever changed. I mean, it starts in a garden in Genesis, and then it ends in a garden in Revelation 22. Uh, but... In, in every page in between, you've got a free will of man. So, um, anyways, it I, just seems it sounds silly to say he's giving you a choice, but he's going to make you do one. That yeah. doesn't. It just doesn't logically follow. Gosh, man, and it's so contrary to the nature of God. Because, um, I mean, if God really is a, an omnibenevolent God, he's all good. Right. There's no evil in him. And James even says that God doesn't tempt any man with evil, and it never entered his heart to do so. But exactly. when it comes to when it, when it comes to the free will of man and God actually holding man accountable at the judgment, um, in in this particular case, it would be the great white throne judgment. Um, you're, you've got to take the position that Calvin does that some people were from the womb doomed to hell because God predetermined them, which is double predestination. Double predestination being you've got some that are predestined to eternal life, the elect, the chosen. And then you've got others that are predestined to eternal damnation, and in that sense, it's it's kind of it, it without a doubt is in unjust of God under that right. systematic to hold somebody accountable for something that He tells them to do that they don't have the ability to respond to. And when it exactly. comes to free will, I think that's something that we have to take into consideration: Is God just? Is He going to tell right. you to do something you don't have the ability to do, or do you actually have free will? Right. But. And they seem to... Uh, I just lost my train of thought, but they'll say... Um, yeah, I completely forgot what I was going to say. I'm sorry. Oh, dude, you're good. Let me read this next quote. It says, uh, this, folks, this is still the free will of man. It says, this, folks, is ultimately 
what it boils down to. If we say uh, mankind does not have a free will and is not the determiner of their own actions, then we're forced to conclude God is the one that causes evil. And before we, um, before I read the rest of this, I, I want to say this. Isaiah 45, verse 7, absolutely, without a doubt, says God makes peace, God makes evil, okay? It's obviously something that God has created. God has created these things. He's created peace. He's created evil. Um, there's no doubt about it. It does not, however, mean that God causes peace. God causes evil. I think right. that these are the two great deciding choices that you have a choice between. One would be the tree of life. One would be the tree of knowledge of good and evil. One would be peace. One would be evil. These are the two right. choices that God has given us, but we actually ultimately have the ability to morally choose between good and evil. So, and that—that's the simplest way that I can put it. Um, and it, do you have any thoughts on that? Because obviously God created it, but how does that work in to God actually being the cause of evil? Well, in the context, He's talking about evil as in like distress or. You know, disaster. It's not actually causing people to sin. So again, yeah. it comes down to how we define our terms, and that's whole. I agree wholeheartedly that the foundation we need to make is how we define our terms, and that that needs to be established in the big, very beginning of pretty much every debate. Absolutely, and, and gosh, man, I we'll keep saying it over and over. We've got to define our terms. So, um, I. I think you do a really good job of defining the terms, and you go on to say here, you say, it's an attack on God's character is what it boils down to. And uh, it says, the Bible states in several places, God does not cause us to sin. He's so pure, he cannot even look upon wickedness, and you give quotes for this, and you go on to say, how could anyone believe uh, that our God would do that? And we actually had a quote on here, um, a comment on here from one of our YouTube uh live viewers he says forced choice is devoid of meaning and love and i think that that's a, an important thing to point out because it would show that if god is really actually causing evil to come to pass and causing people to sin or creating a nature in man that he is only able to do according to that nature and not contrary to that nature which ultimately means you cannot choose morally good or bad um so i mean it it, it comes down to responsibility. Who's responsible for your actions? Is it you or is it God? And right. I think this guy makes. If it it's God, there yeah. there really is no moral, you know, being. There is there is no good or evil. Absolutely. I mean, and ultimately, what we are saying, if God if God is the cause and and actually is the driving force and factor behind all things that come to pass, he's he's working from what a Calvinist has to call mystery or his secret will it's something that we can't define you can't find it in scripture conveniently it, we right. know it's there <laughs> we know that god's doing it but we just can't explain it so it, it's got to be just a mysterious claim you know that's right. what it is but okay so you say we're not subject to our natures if this is the way that god has made us it would mean it would mean that we're no different from animals we have an animal instinct um that we're only able to Re, you say we have the ability to reason and think logically. After the first, uh, after the first couple ate of the fruit, they were forbidden not to eat. They, and by extension, we as human beings, gained the knowledge of good and evil. So it's everything that we just we've been talking about. But what it comes down to is 
you go on to say, all of these things were put into us because man is made in God's image. We experience joy when we do right and guilt and shame when we do wrong. So I, I guess in that context, you, the Calvinist would say that, that the sinful nature of Adam and Eve, the fall, is something that is passed on, whether you want to say genetically, morally, or inherently, whatever, however you want to define it. However it's passed on, it's passed on to us in our nature. So my question is, are you born, in that sense, are you born with a nature that is already considered sinful? Um, it, I mean, before, so obviously we're getting into a, a little bit deeper topic here. Um, right. Is it... it I, what does God do with kids? I mean, ultimately, if it comes down to it, what does God do with a kid who dies prematurely? Um, if, it, in that sense, what would your answer be to somebody like that? Because obviously the Calvinist would say God is just. If the kid is one right. of the elect, he's going to heaven. If he's not one of the elect, he's not going to heaven. And right. ultimately, who a are consistent you one would yeah. say that. You what? A consistent one would say that, yeah. Well, most Calvinists, what I've found, um, just say, you know what, I'm not even going to address it. It's an emotional, it's it's too of an, too emotional of a thing to even talk about. And right. I don't blame them for not wanting to talk about it because obviously right. the systematic... I try and shy away from that, yeah. too. But, okay, so let's change the subject. All right. <laughs> I remember what I was going to say earlier, though. Yes. Um, when they do, when they are pressed on, you know, double predestination... They'll just, you know, use one of their rescuing devices and they'll just say, well, God is just to choose whoever. But that doesn't um, really go along with the Bible. The Bible clearly says he does not, he's not a respecter of persons. He, he doesn't yeah. play favorites. And clearly predestination logically says that he favors some and not the other. <laughs> so yeah. it's just silly to think. <laughs> Well, and it's, it, I think that that's a good point because, I mean, um, e even earlier today, I, th I think that we've got to consider passages like Ephesians 1. I mean, passages right. where the, the foundational proof texts need to be addressed. I mean, so often the foundational proof text for a Calvinist is going to be four main passages. It's going to be Romans 8, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, and then John 6 or John 10, you know, depending on where you end up taking it. But I think that we've got to establish um, these proof text passages and what the context is. And, and when it comes down to it, uh, there was nobody ever in Christ from the foundation of the world. Right. Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That means that it, it, was, it was preordained that Christ would die. Okay, the means that God used to bring it about, are it, that's another discussion. Um, all right. together, but what it comes down to is there's a specific place and time that any born-again believer is actually placed in Christ. And Ephesians 1.13 actually gives us what we would call the order of salvation. And it says, after that ye heard, ye believed, and then you were filled with the Holy Spirit of redemption. Um, right. I, we've got the order of salvation, but a Calvinist would have to put regeneration first in order to support the systematic that no one is able to come to Christ. And I think that's that's important to, you know, kind of define what we mean when we're talking about elect or, or chosen or, you know, just kind of the terms that you, you were bringing up there. All right, so your next section that you've got here is radical corruption. So you've gone through sovereignty, you've gone through the free will of man, then you've got radical corruption. Um, mm -hmm. This is what, kind of what I wanted to address here. You've got a few things that you kind of lay... 
the foundation that Calvinism was established not until the fourth century under uh, under Augustine. And and you give a little bit of a background here, and I think this is something that a lot of Calvinists would disagree with, uh, but I, I'd like to get your perspective on it. You says you say it began with a group in the late first century called uh, called Gnostics. You say. Uh, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek gnosis, which means knowledge. This group believed the way to salvation came from some hidden knowledge that God only bestowed upon a certain group of people. Apparently, they, uh, only they were special enough to get enlightened by God. Many people think that Gnosticism was influenced by Buddhism because of their similar beliefs. And then you go on to say this. You say, Ju Julian of Ecclenum had this to say in opposition to Augustine and his followers. Those Manichaeans say that by the sin of the first man, that is, of Adam, free will perished, and that no one has now the power of living well, but that all uh, are constrained into sin by the necessity of their flesh. In opposition to these things, we daily argue because we say that the free will is in uh, all by nature and could not perish by the sin of Adam. So in that regard, this kind of piggybacks off of what everything that you and I have been talking about up to this point, um, kind of the nature of the fall uh, the inherency of that nature um, into us, into their children, and, and, and so on down through it. But when it comes to the origin of Calvinism, you're laying the foundation that it's, it's built on a Gnostic doctrine. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? From what you know, I've read that the Gnostics believed, um, it's very similar to what Calvinists believe today. Uh, especially the the doctrine of you know we lost our free will and you know we can only do you know what we're na our nature is you know drawn to do um, and so I kind of see similarities and many of the church fathers as they're called um, actually go against this and they're they're trying to tell Christians not to believe in this and it's just it's not true. And so um, then when Augustine or Augustine uh, brought it back, I guess, he kind of brought it into the church um, because he had so much influence, He, you kind of see it come back in again. And we know from history that he was a Gnostic prior to his conversion. So it, he kind of, I guess, brought it back in. And uh, that's where we're kind of seeing is these similarities between, you know, then and now. Yeah, and um, I would agree with that. Uh, and, and I think a lot of I think a, a lot of traditionalists would actually agree with that history. I don't think that any Calvinist um, really can disagree that <clears throat> that yeah. Augustine was actually a Gnostic. He was part of the Manichaean sect. And, and I think right. that... <clears throat> That's what Julian any, calls him. He does. I mean, I don't think that there's any written record that he actually truly broke away from that. There's a record that he became a Christian, but but obviously right. you can. So he was he was historically he was he was um, battling Pelagius back in the day. Pelagius completely denied grace and the work of the Holy Spirit prior to, prior to salvation altogether, and right. and so I think Augustine was uh, trying to find responses to why he didn't agree with Pelagius. And right. and I don't think that that argument has ever really ceased between a Calvinist right. and anyone who is um, not who is non-Calvinist. I mean, you get so many different labels. I can't tell you how many times I've been called a Pelagian or right. semi-Pelagian or exactly. you know, uh, Arminian. So 
where do you kind of fall? It's just like, a word they throw around. <laughs> it is, and I think that it ultimately, guys, if you're a traditionalist, if you're if you're having these online discussions with someone, and to me, the first time someone has to call the other person uh, a Pelagian or semi-Pelagian or a Gnostic, a Gnostic, because I don't believe Calvinists. I don't believe Calvinists. Most Calvinists today are Gnostics. I think that um, right. if you look at the foundation of you know where Calvinism was laid with with Augustine, that uh, certainly it was influenced by the, the Gnostic sect. Um, oh, but, oh right. so, yeah. What? Just go play. Go play the other one. Go ahead, play. I'll be right back. <laughs> All right, man. Sorry about that. We'll pause it for you. So, Hi. I'm going to keep going with this. For those of you who are viewing live right now, I, I think that this is something to consider, uh, kind of what the foundation was. Um, when it when it comes to Calvinism, you don't see anybody. You don't see anybody. No church fathers are writing uh, about uh, a limited atonement. Nobody is writing about uh, the total depravity in the sense of what um, Augustine is. It, obviously, the two didn't come come about until uh, a lot later than that, uh, the early nineteenth century, twentieth twentieth uh, century. Um, well, it was probably around the Council of, of Dort um, that the Tulip, somewhere around there, either during the Council of Dort or shortly after, the Synod of Dort, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I, I think it's important to understand that the, the Tulip was something that um, Augustine and Calvin, neither one of those guys came up with that acrostic. Um, and, and obviously, I, there's a lot of differences in, in what Augustine and, and uh, Calvin actually believed between the two of them. Uh, but but even even Calvin, I don't think that Calvin would could be labeled a Calvinist today because the Calvinists today are more of a, a new age Cal, a, a new yeah. Calvinist movement. Um, it's evolved pretty much pretty far. So it's it's not even it's not it's in a lot of ways it's not really even close to what Calvin believed. Um, especially when it comes to limited atonement, Calvin definitely believed in an unlimited atonement. What he believed right. in was a particular redemption. Uh, right. uh, you know, but I, I think that I, I think that that would answer the question of um, for whom did Christ die and what was the purpose of Christ's death compared to, um, you know, those are the two questions that are being compared against each other. What was the purpose of his death compared to whom for whom did Christ actually die? So right. uh, that's when you kind of get into these word games of defining all world, every, um, everyone. Uh, these defining your terms. Gosh, man, it's like Calvin. Calvin even recognized the fact that you cannot get around these terms. Like it's a universal atonement. The application of the atonement is something completely separate. And, and right. I think that's where Calvin drew the line was what was the actual extent of the atonement. But um, so I don't know that he would actually fit in too well with with the new Calvinist movement today. Um, you know, but that was. <laughs> So, all right. So you got radical corruption here. You say first off, it's it's not reasonable to believe in in original sin because the Bible says that we get our spirit from God. Ecclesiastes twelve seven, Hebrews twelve nine. I highlighted this one because I had a question on that. What do you mean that it's not reasonable to believe in or original sin? It, so I would ask you, um, what is original sin, and why isn't it reasonable to believe in original sin? To me, original sin was. Adam and Eve eating of the, you know, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the 
the act, the original sin, act, sinful act that they've committed. Um, many today believe that it's something, this sin nature has been passed down. I want to in the chair all by myself. Why? No, you can't. They believe that there's this sin nature that has been passed down from generation no. from Adam. I gotta talk, hold on. No. <laughs> and uh, it's just, uh, the, the one, the Bible never says it's this at all anywhere um and two um like i wrote in there we we get our spirits from god our soul comes from god not our you know genealogy our history so it again they're conflating what sin is defining our terms uh, i define sin as an act not something that you know it, it's influential uh, it's not hereditary so when you're answering the question of what sin is, you, you, you say that um, it's not something that was passed on from our parents. It's not something that's hereditary. I right. would agree it's not, with that. It's not some physical thing that can be a physical trait, but you know, there's no sin gene. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's, it, you go on to say this is where the false idea of infant baptism came from, where, where man started to believe that babies had their parents' sins or that these little ones had sinned in some way that they needed to baptize them. So do you want to address that point a little bit? Because it, we've talked about sovereignty of God. We've talked about the free will of man. We've defined right. a little bit about uh, what original sin is and, and what it, we're, you're basically leading up to and establishing um, what the foundation for um, Calvinism is built on and how the, the terms and definitions are different. But do you want to talk about why that's something that's important enough to you to put that into the book? The original sin, you mean? Well, in reference to, yeah, what original, well, not original sin, but in reference to the, the Reddit, the, I mean, the sin gene, if you want to call it that. Right. Well, like I said, it's, it's about defining terms, and they just, well, not, not even Calvinists, it's so widespread that, like, 90% of Christianity believes in it, and like I said, one, it's not stated in scripture, and two, the, it just doesn't logically follow. Um, and basically, the whole book is defining terms correctly, and um, I don't, don't know them offhand, but, you know, sin is defined as an act that we do. It's not, um, like, once we disobey God, that's when we're sinning. It's not, you know, it's, um, it's, I think it's what they say abstract it's an abstract um idea it's not a it's not something physical that's passed down yeah um so once we you know once we get that def definition right we can see that it it just it doesn't logically make sense so uh, this is something i think that i'm going to do a video on eventually because i've had so many people and, and you may understand it so many people have got a a genuine a genuine concern with uh, the teaching of of when sin is actually imputed to somebody, and and I think that what we're, what what I'm really saying is, does God actually send kids to hell? We I was talking about this on Twitter earlier today, and uh, you've got some really hard determinist Calvinists who would be a supralapsarian mindset that absolutely agrees with and says. Listen, if they're not elect, they're not going to... I, this is something that as Christians, I think it's important to take a stand on. 
you know, right. especially when it comes to, um, when it when it comes to the character quality of God. What does God actually do with, with a baby? What does God do with a kid? It's it it is absolutely without a doubt an emotional argument. But guess what? We've got seventy million babies in America that somebody needs an answer for. What's going on there? I mean, if we cannot right. as Christians provide an answer. Um, for these things that are going on, uh, who can? I, I think the Bible gives an answer on it. I'm definitely going to do a video on this. I don't know when I'm going to do it, um, but that's besides the the fact. The next point you address is um, you get to his irresistible grace, and then you get to regeneration preceding grace. I mean faith, and uh, you talk about faith as it works. So you do, you try to define the terms, and then you you you, you dialogue with it. Now you obviously use Acts seven fifty one. Um, where I believe it's, who is it, Philip? Philip is given this address here. Um, uh, Stephen, I think. Is it Stephen? Stephen? Yeah, that's right, it's Stephen. Stephen, yeah. so he's he, he's speaking to the, the nation of Israel, and he's saying that you, you do you do resist, you, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your father is dead. Um, right. That's kind of a paraphrase, obviously, but but right. uh, that's one of the most famous quotes in that, in, to say that you actually can resist the Holy Spirit, but... But what, what a Calvinist response would be to that is, of course, you're going to resist it. That's your nature to resist it until God changes your nature. And I think right. that kind of transitions to your next point. Does regeneration pre precede faith? So what would, your, what would your response be to a Calvinist who would tell you you're only acting according to your nature and therefore you're going to resist the Holy Spirit? We're not denying that you can resist the Holy Spirit. But that when right. the Holy Spirit does not, decides that you're going to be regenerated, you will be regenerated. What's your response to that? Um, they have a, uh, well, they'll say, you know, the Holy Spirit himself will act upon it. And, I mean, I would just, I mean, Holy Spirit acts through anyone. But when it comes to regeneration, he acts through the gospel, the, the written word of God. That's what regenerates us, not some hidden, you know, people like to say, you know, he's he's poking you, you know, or he, it's not something that, um, they'll say the draw, they'll go to John 6 of, you know, the Father drawing um, through the Holy Spirit, but it, it's through the Word. It's not some hidden, like, actually, you know, he's actually drawing you. Um, when we are learning and learning what the Bible actually says, that's what's convicting us. That's how the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and what it says and how we're how we're sinning, how we can obey God now, now that we're actually reading this, whether you believe it or, you know, once you believe it or not, you can accept it or reject it. Um, that's how the Holy Spirit, I believe, is working today, is through the Word of God. Absolutely, I think I think that's a good answer. So I've got to I got to tell you this. This is a pause. This is an intermission, kind of on where we're at. Um, I'm I'm not going to go a whole lot longer. I know you've got things to do tonight, um, yeah. and you know I appreciate you taking the time to do this. You do have a challenge. Um, are you familiar with K Dub on Twitter? Yes. I'm going to throw this out to you. K Dub is he, he tweeted live or didn't tweet it live. He wrote into the comment section live. If you would like to, uh, you don't have to give an answer right now. Just uh, he wants to um, have a debate with you, so um, it, on this subject. But you don't have to give an answer or anything. I'm just throwing that out there that that's something that he was putting he was putting out to you. But um, anyway, so let's let's uh, 
I'm going to kind of support that. I mean, um, I think that it, it's something that we've got to articulate as a traditionalist. What is the, the order of salvation? Um, the order of salvation is laid out in Ephesians 1.13. I've asked Calvinists multiple times, tell me what the order is in this verse. Well, John 6 this, uh, John 10 this, you know, you, you know, the Holy Spirit, you accept a man, be born again, not of the will of man, not of the will of God, oh, blah, 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 blah. And, and right. you just go on and on and on. And I said, no, let's go back to Ephesians 1.13. Well, you can't use a proof text of Ephesians 1.13, which is so ironic to me. It's like... Because that's what they're doing. <laughs> gosh, proof text. Oh, it's so... Uh, you know, and, and I think I've it, seen a debate too um, that I, I was online years ago, where the guy was literally just picking verses out of the Bible. This is what you know, and it it just boggled my mind that he goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the Old Testament, and that's exactly what proof texting is: is you're just cherry picking verses. It, it's just silly to see, and that's it's silly to see that they accuse us of doing that, and that's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> you know, um, that's the frustrating side of it. I think that, I, it, so here's what I'll say about Calvinism. Calvinism has absolutely 100% without a doubt challenged me more than anything that I've ever studied, because it, it, it really makes you question, like, is this the gospel? Is this right. the God of the Bible? What yeah, God me, actually, me too. you know, and so it's challenged me, and I've run across guys like K-Dub, I think Caleb, he's a good guy. Chris Williams, I really yeah. like him. I really like uh, a lot of the guys that I interact with online, um, and particularly a lot of these guys. I think that it's, uh, I think, I think that it's, it's good to challenge each other, to sharpen each other. I'm not one of these guys who says, you know, what if you're a Calvinist, you're not saved. I, that's not, that's not right. me. I don't think that's the position that you're taking. Uh, the whole purpose of this show is to really be able to open the dialogue and to have a, a, a source to communicate and, and to put it out on a platform that other people can interact with and, and toss ideas exactly. back and forth. It's it's something to get us to think and to talk about these subjects. I mean, especially when you've got a movement in Calvinism that is absolutely, um, it's spreading like wildfire. We need to establish what we're going to believe on this. And and if, if we can't do that, um, then, you know, you're, you'll fall for anything but um so i think that's that's really kind of what the purpose of this show is in 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 that regard i think there's a lot of good points in in this book i would recommend it to anyone who is is looking for a good quick um uh read that has a lot of a lot of good information in it one thing that i would say is i don't have people on my channel that i that i always agree with there's some things that you and i were even talking about earlier that I, that I don't necessarily agree with. And I wanted to ask you this before we close it out, um, not, not to end on this, but just to ask ask this. You, you had talked about in, in regard to salvation um, that you see the ability for a person to lose their inheritance. And, and I would agree that a Christian can lose their inheritance, but I, I would not associate that inheritance with salvation itself. So it, it seemed to me that was something that I wasn't 100% clear on what was the stance that you were taking on but in, in, in drawing the distinction between the inheritance of a Christian and the actual salvation of a Christian? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Um, is that your belief? Uh, yeah. Like I mentioned in the book, though, I, I don't like really like the phrase lose your salvation. kind of sounds like you misplaced it somewhere. But um, it's, it's basically forfeiting your inheritance. I, I do believe in the inheritance is equated to salvation. Um, so once someone stops believing, uh, I would say they're basically giving their gift back to, you know, the gift of salvation back to God. 
and forfeiting it. So you would say that they absolutely were saved and that they, they turned away from God and when they turned away from God, they have forfeited that salvation. But you're not drawing the distinction that they never were saved to begin with? Right. Okay. Yeah. That, so so would, you, would you adhere to the perseverance of the saints in that regard? Do you believe that a, a, a person has to persevere in order to obtain salvation? If you don't, if you don't persevere to the end, that you never were saved to begin with. Um, I believe that you can be saved, um, but yes, through God, you know, through Christ, we are to persevere to the end. That's pretty much what Jesus said. <laughs> Those who are faithful yeah. until the death um, will ultimately inherit this promise of salvation. Well, and maybe that's something I, I don't want to. I don't want to focus on. Uh, a whole lot of time on on this particular segment of the show to just talking about that aspect of it because I think that a lot the right. biggest aspect of this book is really focused on on Calvinism itself and uh, so I just wanted to see if you if you um, really if if you if you affirmed what Calvinism taught on the perseverance of the saints and if that was consistent with um, losing yourself so it it seems like you might have some agreement in that regard uh, yeah so. Um, to kind of wrap I believe, up, I believe it's both parties. Yes. Okay. So, okay. Now, maybe that's something that you and I could talk about another time. I don't know. Yeah, okay. But, you know, that's, I'd definitely be interested in having that conversation. But, you know, yeah. uh, that's, that's, I want to put this up there for those of you who are viewing right now. If you hadn't had a chance to check it out, uh, you should be able to see on the screen in just a second. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Um, I've got it in the Kindle version. It's $3.99, and if you want it in a paperback, you can get it for $9.95. Uh, check it out. I, I think that Kevin is is open to dialogue. If you have questions, you can reach him Absolutely. on Twitter. It's uh, at K underscore M-Y-C-H-U-K, uh, Kevin Mikich, and you can find him online, whether it's on Twitter um, or you can find his book on Amazon. Definitely check those things out. It's, I think it's something, you know, worth having in your library and something that you can reference to. Let me tell you why. All right, this was my favorite part about the entire book. Um, you can let me know. I need to switch back here so it doesn't have an echo for you guys viewing live. Um, but this was my favorite part. The Calvinists Calvinist, um, are obviously going to say, you know, this is the worst part of the book. But I really like, <laughs> I really like the conclusion down at the end. Um, you go through, I just want to read a few of these. It's called Verses a la Calvinism. Okay. okay. I mean, don't be so thin-skinned, guys. I, you've got verses that, we, you know, you do the same thing to us that we don't read it the way the Calvinist does. Here's what a Calvinist reads when they read John 3.16. He says, For God so loved his elect that he gave his only begotten son, that whenever they believe in him, they will not perish, but have everlasting life. And then you got 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who predestined all as he liked to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is uh, one God and one mediator between God and his elect, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for the, them to be testified in due time. And then you got 1 John 2, 2. There's a bunch of these. Um, this is just, you know, kind of pun for me, I think. It... You know, Calvinists, you can laugh at it too. You guys make fun of us. We can make fun of you. I believe that we're all, we're still brothers in Christ. We should be able to do that. 
Uh, right. You know, so don't get mad at us. Here's, here's an, another one. I'll leave it with this. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for all of the elect. So that, there's some fun stuff for you. That's the conclusion there. But how would you want to wrap up this broadcast and leave someone with a final thought when it comes to Calvinism? What do you want to leave with our, the audience? Um, like we touched on before, I, it's not Calvinists I disagree with. It's obviously the doctrine. Uh, I actually have Calvinist friends that I still believe are brothers, and you know we still have dialogues with them. Um, so I don't. This isn't a bashing on Calvinism. It's simply trying to open up and be able to discuss this, um, and pretty much to see the opposite side. And the opposite side is not Arminianism. It's uh, not. I just say non-Calvinist. So. No, I think that's a good way to put it. So, Kevin, once again, man, thank you so much for uh, coming on tonight. Maybe we can do something in, in the future. I don't know. Um, that, that's up to you. I'll leave it in your in your hands. Obviously, you've got a challenge from K-Dub now. I, you might be, right. you know, you're just going to be an internet sensation after this. I mean, what, Probably. So, uh, anyways, I thanks for again that. for coming on. I know you've got, you've got kids at home. Uh, we got Christmas around the corner. I hope you have a Merry Christmas and, and that you your too. family has a good time. So, yeah. I'm going to click over here to my closing scene. I want to I want to talk to you guys that are viewing live with us real quick here. Uh, if it's going to let me go to my closing scene. There. So, hey, um, thanks again for the, those of you who are viewing live. Uh, I think this is, the, it, this the whole purpose of this show is really to dialogue with not just like-minded people, but uh, people that I can have disagreements with, whether it's in a debate format, whether, whether it's in an open format that... Uh, we just have a, a, a conversation like we're sitting down and having coffee together. Um, if this is something that you think is beneficial and you would recommend it, I would ask that you would like and share this these videos. Either retweet it on Twitter, uh, share it on Facebook. Um, you know, add us as as uh, sub subscribe to the YouTube channel and, and just get it out there. Um, yeah, recommend it. I would, I would greatly appreciate that to have another traditional perspective. Um, out there for us to, you know, represent what we believe without having somebody who d is, does not believe the way that we do and explain what we believe. So uh, if you are a Calvinist and, and, and you want to dialogue with me in, in an area that whether I uh, would disagree with you or, you know, maybe I didn't define something the way that you would want to have it defined, I'm open for dialogue as well. You can reach me on Twitter. I'm at the real J Gibbs. And uh, you can reach me there. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel and leave a comment as well. Um, so, uh, other than that, guys, I love you. God bless you. Have a good night and we'll catch you next time. It'll be a couple weeks. I'm going to be debating, uh, Dave, um, from at Presby polemics that uh, this guy, uh, it should be a good debate. I think it's going to be worth your time. We're going to be talking about the ability of man to actually, uh, respond and come to Christ without being regenerated first. So, um, if you're interested in that kind of thing, tune in for that. It uh, should be, I think it's January 3rd, it's the somewhere, it's the first week of January, right after the New Year. I'll put a link up on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook, all the normal social media stuff, and stay tuned for that. So, have a good one, guys. Let me know if you need anything. Thanks. Bye.